Well, we are in week three of Christmases for Families, and I uh, would like for you to pull out your message notes. The front of them looked like this. The back looked like this. You can pull out your Bible as well and go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Today, I want to just acknowledge a reality. We talk about Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. We talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. But something that often gets overlooked in the Christmas story is that when the Christmas story begins, both of these people, Joseph and Mary, aren't married They're not the mother and the father yet. They are single people in a world that's oriented often for married people. That's the reality. They're single people in a world that's often oriented towards married people. Now, they're on a journey. They're in a relationship. Their hope is to be married. But when the story opens, they're just people trying to make it in the world. They probably are pretty young. Joseph might be at about 20 years old. We we just say that because historically that's the time at which a a man would begin to have enough uh, financial means to think about taking a wife. He'd be far enough along in his trade. He might be 18 to say 22. He might be far enough along in his trade to have enough money to care for a family. And in those days, that was really the only prohibition was that you should be able to largely care for your family. And if you could, then you were kind of ready to be married. And Mary could have been as young, this will sound odd in our age, but she could have been as young as 13, 14, 15 years old. So there's a gap, right, in their age. But that was the societal norms at the time. But when the story opens, which is what we're going to look at today, they aren't together. The ending that we know of the story isn't done yet. They're on the front end of a journey with their relationship. They're on the front end of a journey with where they're going in life. They're on the front end of a journey with their career. And they're not sure, they're not 100% confident how it's all going to work out. Now, we know the Christmas story. You know most of the Christmas story. You know enough of the Christmas story to know kind of how it ends. Mary gets this honorable position of giving birth to Jesus. She's tapped with that amazing privilege and responsibility. And Joseph gets to be the adopted dad and the wise men come and the kings and the whole bit. All that stuff happens. But on the front end, it's just hope, but it's not realized. On the front end, it's a bunch of dreams that aren't yet satisfied. And I want to talk to today everybody in the room who's in that position. You got some hope, you got some dreams, you got some things you'd like to see happen, but it's not quite yet done. But specifically, since we're calling it for families, I want to talk to those members of our church family who aren't married, who are single. And in a church like ours that's focused on families, sometimes it can feel like perhaps you wonder if this is a place for you. In my family, we have four single people. Not me and Jill, we're, we're married. Our four kids are single. And two of our kids are full-on adulting, and the other two are approaching there very, very quickly. And so we can't really think about our family dynamic without talking about the single people in the room. And Jill and I have been together almost 29 years, friends. I know we don't look that old. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. But... But we're, 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 we're approaching 29 years together, and it's hard for me to remember what single life was like. But this week, as I read the story of Mary on the front, front end of her journey, I read it through the lens of how would Mary, as a single young lady, trying to figure out what the world is going to do to her, how life's going to play out, what would the message of Jesus coming into the world mean to a woman in that position? What would that mean? Last week we looked at what would it mean perhaps to a dad or somebody who aspired to be a dad in Joseph. 
And while maybe this is not you, maybe you're not a single person wondering what the world holds for you and hoping to get all that you want, you might be married today, you might be a grandparent, you might be divorced, I don't know where you are, we're going to talk about biblical principles that apply across the spectrum. So what we're talking about is just truth from God's word, so it doesn't matter where you are in life, but I want to specifically focus on single folks, all right? So in your message notes, you have a handful of the verses from the passage I'm going to read. It's Luke chapter 1. On the screen in your Bible, you'll see all of the verses from verse 26 to 38. On your message notes, there's just select ones. So if you follow along your message notes, I have more words. I'm not making them up. Just on your message notes, there's a few verses missing, all right? We run out of space sometimes. So Luke chapter 1, verse 26, the front end of the, of the Christmas story. Here's how it goes. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, Elizabeth is Mary's relative. Elizabeth is pregnant. She's going to give birth to a guy we call John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And she's already six months pregnant. Here's what happens. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. This is a backwoods little village. It's certainly not the prompt the, the pomp and circumstance of Jerusalem. It doesn't have all the, 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 the glaring sunlight of a Roman city that receives the favor of, of the Caesar. This is a backwoods, you know, this is like Hamilton. That's what this is like. That's a joke. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. I, I love Hamilton. I really do. But I'm trying to think like, no, so like if I were preaching in Tennessee in the town I grew up, I'd say this is Benton. You guys don't know Benton, and that's the whole point. Benton is this little bitty city, of, you know, an hour away from Chattanooga. Nobody knows about it. Hamilton kind of has a similar appeal around here. A lot of great stuff can happen in these places, but they don't have, just because you're, they don't have the same pomp and circumstance that goes with the pedigree of being from Nazareth that you would have maybe from Cincinnati. Everybody knows of, of Cincinnati, all right? So in the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So her life is taking a turn. Mary was, I like this line, greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's interesting. I don't know what you think about when you think about Mary. About 65% of our church was Catholic before attending Four Corners. And so in your tradition, if you were Catholic, Mary has a, a prominent position. And it's deserved. I mean, she's, my goodness, she got to carry the Savior of the world. What a privileged, privileged role that God tapped her on the shoulder for. But when she's introduced in Luke chapter 1, the first emotion the first reality Mary is wrestling with, what it, uh, what it does to her is it troubles her. She doesn't step into it with peace. She doesn't step into it with boldness. She's not eager to run after it. She gets this cryptic message from the angel, and she's not sure what it all means and where it all is going to take her. And that uncertainty outside of her produces uncertainty inside of her. She's wrestling with this. It's one of the reasons I love the Word of God. One of the ways I think you know you can trust the Word of God, when the Bible talks about its heroes, it never presents a flat character who always does the right thing, with the exception of Jesus. But even in the person of Jesus, you get the emotional struggles of his life. You know, in fairy tales, the heroes are just heroes. They do it right all the time in the simplest of stories. 
But in the Bible, you see Jesus, the primary hero, wrestling with things emotionally. He comes to the pinnacle of his existence on earth, and the Bible says just before he goes to the cross, his highest glory, he's in the garden praying, saying, God, I don't really want to do this thing that you've called me to do. If there's any way possible to let this cup pass from me, let it pass. And then he says, the thing that allows him to be the hero not my will, but your will be done. But I'm struggling with this. And then you got Mary, arguably one of the you know, top 10 most important characters in the Bible. You got Mary going, I hear this angel talking to me, but instead of feeling all calm and confident because God's engaging me, I'm feeling some disturbance internally. Mary hears these things. She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Now, the angel had to say that because Mary was afraid. It scared her. I mean, first of all, there's an angel talking to her. That's a little weird, right? Um, and so she's just nervous about that. Mary, do not be afraid. You've found favor with God. That's a wonderful thing. You've got the favor of God on you. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll call him Jesus. That sounds awesome. That sounds really good to Mary. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary and Joseph, the adopted dad and Mary who gives birth to Jesus, both have David, the highest king in Israel's history and their lineage, but they're a long way away from that reality. That's just stories that are told in their family about their great, 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 great grandfather. They don't know anything about what it means to live royally or regally. They're normal, everyday people eking out an existence. And Mary's told that her child is going to reign on David's throne. And unlike David's reign, this reign will not end. And then Mary asks a very natural question, verse 34. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. Now, we won't get into all the science of this, but most of you can figure out what Mary's problem is here. She's struggling with the mechanics of how this is going to work out. And I don't mean to be crass here in any way at all, but Mary is old enough to know how life works. They live in an agrarian society. They've seen animals. It's talked about in the home. It's not a hush-hush subject in that culture. She knows exactly what has to happen, and yet what's supposed to happen for her to give birth hasn't happened yet. And so she just mechanically wonders how she's going to get from here to there. How's that going to happen? Very natural question. Again, one of the things I love about the Word of God, one of the reasons why I think it's believable, is when the characters in the stories of the Bible confront very natural obstacles, you often see them respond to them in the most natural ways. I mean, Mary doesn't say when she hears she's going to give birth, oh, that sounds awesome, let's, let's do that. She's going to do that in a minute. But what she does is she starts working through the process of what does it mean to go through an experience like this. All right, so if that's true, how is that going to happen? How? Mechanically, how are we going to get there? And then the angel says to her in verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And even Elizabeth, her relative, your relative is going to have a child in her old age. So Mary probably didn't know about it yet, right? Because, you know, they don't have text, that kind of stuff. And... Uh, she who was said to be unable to conceive is already in her sixth month. So Mary discovers that her relative is pregnant. And then I like this next phrase, the angel says, for no word of God will ever fail. And then we get 
an insight to Mary that's pretty special. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Let's fill in a few blanks on your message notes, all right? Here's the first one. Mary struggled. That's the first blank. Mary struggled here. So if you're a married person, if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're a single person today, and there's some stuff about life, even some stuff about your spiritual life, even some hopes and dreams that you think God has tapped you on the shoulder for, but the dream is still a dream. It's not yet a reality. The hope is still a hope. It's not yet your reality. If that's where you all at all are today, and you're struggling in any way with where you are with, compared to where you'd like to be, in some ways, you understand Mary's journey. She's struggling here. And specifically, she's struggling with her sense of identity. Who is she really? Up to this point, she's a young virgin woman betrothed to Joseph in a backwoods town. That's who she thinks she is. She's happy with it, for all we know. She's prepared to live that life. She's getting on with life with Joseph, but God's about to interrupt her. And when it happens, it creates in her mind some struggle. She's struggling with her identity, and you get just hints of it here in the passage. She even struggles a little bit with her purpose. She didn't even know her purpose was to give birth to the Son of God. It wasn't like she's praying for it every single day, and other than the sense that maybe every woman deep down in Israel kind of hoped that God would use them to bring the Messiah to the world. We have indicator of that in some of the ancient writings, and a little bit of that in the Bible. So maybe Mary hoped, but she wasn't really confident that was her and was no more than what other people had hoped for. And when it comes to her, there's this discombobulation that happens. And I think even in a simple way here, we discover one of the keys to the Christian life. For those of you that might be exploring whether or not relationship with Jesus is something you want to actively participate in, here's something I think you can rally around. The Christian life, if you want to understand it, really is a call to grow to understand and then embrace. I don't understand it all. I don't know it all. I don't have all my questions answered. But in the Christian life, I'm growing to understand. I'm growing to embrace who I am in Christ. And then I need to walk in that boldness as, as I'm called to as a disciple. The Christian life is a call to grow into our understanding. We don't commit our lives to Jesus and have everything figured out in the very next moment. We don't get all of our questions answered, and then when we do, we step across the line of faith and say, I'm here now to follow Jesus. No, it's not like that at all. What happens is, is we commit our lives to Jesus, and then we begin a journey of discovering what all that that means. Every person that's going to get baptized today, not one of them is perfect. In fact, baptism doesn't mean that a person has arrived. Baptism is a mark in the journey that says, I'm not ashamed to identify with Christ because he wasn't ashamed to identify with me. It doesn't mean I've arrived. It simply means I'm on a journey to grow and to understand. And as I do that, then I'm going to embrace more and more as God reveals himself to me. And this is part of the challenge people have with Christianity. The moment a person calls themselves a Christian, some people look at that person and think that that person is supposed to live a perfect life. And then when they don't, People are disappointed in them. When they don't live a perfect life because they're on a journey, they haven't been perfected yet, then some people look at them and call them hypocrites. The truth is, by the strictest definition of the word, every Christian I've ever known is a hypocrite. 
in the sense that they often don't live up to what they know. They struggle with what they know. They fail. Mary wrestled. But God was taking her on a journey. We get the highlights, the Cliff Notes version of it here in this story. We get the highlights of her journey from uncertainty about her circumstances, uncertainty about the details, but confidence in the God who's leading her. That's what I'm excited for every person that's getting baptized today. They don't know all of their life. It's not all figured out. Every step hasn't been written. They're not signing on to everything they know about God. What they're doing is they're saying, God, I have enough confidence in you that the questions I have, the uncertainty I have, is not as important, doesn't shine as bright, isn't as big as the confidence I have in you. The confidence I have in who you are and what you're taking me on is bigger than all of the questions and concerns that I have. Those of you that are married, you understand this. When Jill and I decided we were going to get married, I thought I knew all about her. I thought I had enough information to make an informed decision. 29 years later, I'm discovering that at that moment, the truth is I only barely knew this woman. So it wasn't that I had all certainty that everything was going to be awesome between us. I had hopes that it would be. I was willing to work to make it be that way. But we have gone on a journey of discovery. But there was a moment when we were about to get engaged that I made the decision, I know enough about her, and what I know about her gives me enough confidence to go ahead and commit to this life together, even though I don't know all the ways that our life together is going to be worked out. I didn't have all my questions answered. If, like if you're single and you're, you're wondering if that person's the right person, you're never going to get to a point of absolute arithmetic certainty, scientific certainty. That's never coming. It's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you'll come to a point where the confidence you have in the person will overshadow the, unconf- the, the lack of confidence you have in the details. That's what happens when people decide to move from one city to another for a job. The confidence they have in the things that they know overshadows and overpowers the lack of confidence they have in all the details. It's never certainty. You never know if it's going to be right. This is the kind of struggle that I hear from the single folks in our church that I'm in a relationship with. They're wondering how to make decisions, and I get asked all the time, how did you know Jill was the right one? And the truth is, I didn't, but I had confidence in her. I had prayerful engagement. I talked to people who knew about these kinds of things, and there came a point I didn't cross from uncertainty into certainty. I crossed from uncertainty about very important things into a general confidence in the person I was going to do life with. And then at that point, I was able to look at her and go, let's do this thing. Let's get married. There's a reason why marriage is used in the Bible as a metaphor for our relationship with God. Those that are following God, it's not that everything they know about life gets answered when they commit their lives to Jesus. It's just that their confidence in the one who's going to lead their life gets big enough to eclipse all the uncertainty they have about life. This is what's happening with Mary. She's struggling with her identity and purpose, and she's beginning to understand that life with God is a growing to understand and then embrace and then actually gain boldness in the journey. Let me talk to you about four gifts that single people this Christmas can give themselves. And when they give it to themselves, they'll also be giving it to others And it's going to flow directly from Mary's journey of discovery, all right? 
Now, last week, we talked about gifts that dads can give, other Christians can give, but specifically, I think the power of a dad giving the gift of words, the gift of a reconciling spirit, the gift of presence, that's powerful when a dad does it. It's powerful when a mom does it. It's powerful when a single person does it in their family. So it applies to everybody. But dads, again, your gift to the world of, especially your kids, of your words, of your presence, and of a reconciling spirit is very powerful. And today, if you're single, these four things that Mary walked through can become gifts to you. And when you give these gifts to yourself, and I want to encourage you to think about the value you have as a single person, the value you have in the kingdom of God, the value you have in this world, you're valuable enough to think about deserving certain gifts. And these gifts are in alignment with the word of God. They're not selfish gifts. They're gifts that if you'll unwrap them, if you'll unwrap them, they'll bring incredible, I believe, clarity and blessing to you. So let's start with number one, gift number one. The gift of working through your fears. Working through your fears. Some of you have had grandkids, nieces and nephews, um, some of you single folks, you know, you have nieces and nephews or cousins, and maybe you remember yourself being afraid of the dark. And so I remember when my kids were young, there'd be a little fear, and we'd go to leave, they'd want the light left on, and that was all well and good, but um, I knew this, if we left the light on a lot, they didn't sleep as well, and then the next day would be rough, right? So both out of selfish motivation and for their good, I wanted them to get the best night's sleep possible, because trust me, I love my kids, but they could get on my nerves if they didn't get enough sleep. So... So we'd be dealing through the fear thing, and very simply, we'd walk in the room, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid of the dark, blah, blah, blah. So we'd turn on the light, and we'd open the closet. See, nothing here. Get out of the bed, look, look, nothing here, right? And I'd work through whatever we could get them to identify, and if they could identify what they were afraid of, we could talk about it. We could shine the light on it. If they couldn't identify what they were afraid of, then it was just this unknown fear and pervasive anxiety, one of the gifts every single person in this room can give, and I think it might have unique per, uh, import to uh, single folks today, is the ability to think through what are you really afraid of and to work through that. Look, look at again what Mary said in verse uh, 46 to 48. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. This is at the end of our story. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So after the story we read in your Bible, if you were to keep reading, Mary kind of goes into poetry about her experiences. And when she thinks about it from the future perspective, she looks back on her past. Here's what she says. My soul glorifies in God because he remembered me. He did not forget me. That's a powerful statement of what was going on in Mary's mind and gives us a little bit of insight into the struggle she was having. She may have felt, at least it appears from her own words, that as a 14, 15-year-old girl betrothed, that she was just one of the crowd. There was nothing all that special about her. In some sense, God had forgotten her. And so when she starts interacting with the Lord, it just creates this anxiety in her at first. But when she reflects on it later, just a few verses down in the chapter, she says, the Lord has remembered me. Mary probably struggled with a sense of significance a little bit, wondering if the Lord would be a part of her life or was God going to work for everybody else but not for her. I've struggled with that as a single person. 
I've struggled with that as a married person. I've struggled with it as a, as, as, as a husband. I've struggled with it as a dad. You, you may have struggled with it as a mom. Has God forgotten me? That's normal. And if it's just general anxiety, it's one thing. Being able to just kind of deal with that. Has the Lord forgotten me? When Mary had a chance to think deeply about that reality, she said, Here, here's the truth. The Lord had not forgotten me. I wasn't aware of his plan. I didn't know he had a big thing for me. I was just doing life. And all of a sudden, in the middle of doing life with God, God's plan for me becomes clearer to me. It was there all along. I just didn't know it. And she's working through her fears. One of the challenges I hear from single folks is they say that I don't know if I'm ever going to get married. Most single folks I know who are younger at least want to be married. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible makes it clear that marriage is a good thing and uh, that a husband who finds a, a wife is highly blessed. And they're wondering, you know, I see other people doing it. My peers are doing it. I'm the only one left in my peer group. And they're wondering if it's going to happen. And you got to work through that fear. And I can't answer all the questions of what's going to happen to a single people, but I can tell you from the story of Mary, Mary had some struggles going on. And when God first began to really deal with her, the first emotion she had was anxiety, fear. But when she had a chance to look back, she saw that God was working in her life all along. It's really powerful to remember that we can trust God even when we don't know all the details. And so let me just make a couple statements here. Trusting God is not the absence of fear. When you have Mature faith, it doesn't mean you don't have any doubt. It just means that you have faith in the one that you're trusting that is bigger than the obstacle that you see. You have faith in the one that you're trusting, and it's bigger than the obstacles that you see. That's what Mary was doing with the Lord. In fact, trusting God, it's bringing your fears to him because you trust his heart for you. And what's at stake for every married person, every single person, every man, every woman, when they get in the middle of this funk and they're wondering if God has forgotten them, what's at stake for them is what they believe about God's heart for them. And it comes down to a fundamental question that you have to answer for yourself. What do you believe God's heart for you is? Is God's heart for you good? And is it good enough for you to follow his plan for your life and his principles for your life, or is God's heart for you one that he's just forgotten you, or it's not good for you, so you need to figure it out on your own and carry the weight of leading your life by yourself? Married or single, what do you believe is God's heart for you? The gift of working through your fears allows you to shine the light in those places. Gift number two, the gift of asking really wise questions, really wise questions. It's been said that if you ask the right question, if you make it a habit of asking the right question, then there's really no obstacle that you can't overcome. I don't know if I buy that kind of 30,000-foot view principle, but I think there's some wisdom in the idea of figuring out what the right questions were. Remember in Mary's story, very simple, um, you're going to give birth, and Mary's like, all right, so that sounds, all right good, but, but how? I, mechanically, how's this going to work? I just want to know some of the details. There's no problem in your faith journey in asking questions. If you're single, there's no challenge in your faith journey of you asking questions of God and other people. The challenge is, is asking the right kinds of questions, wise questions. Wise questions propel you past the group and they get you past your obstacles. Here's a question I like to ask people regularly when we're talking about life issues 
and they're talking about maybe a relational challenge or they're talking about whether or not they need to move or they're talking about whether or not to go ahead and have a kid. Here's some questions I'll ask them. Hey, tell me what you want. And then they answer, and they usually answer pretty surface. Well, I want to be married. I want more money in my job. I want to have a kid. That's good. But, But what do you really want in that thing? So not what do you want. That's a fine question. There's a deeper question. What do you really want? Like, why do you really want a kid? Think about that for a minute. Maybe, maybe a kid is God's desire for you. Maybe that's his heart for you. Maybe that's what he wants to give you. But why do you really want this thing? Now, the exploration of what you really want, what's motivating you in that want, that goes a long way to helping you understand where you are and what you need to do. Now, you, want, you want a relationship. You want to get married. Good. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's honorable. What do you really want in that marriage? How you answer that question will often determine what happens next in your life. What do you really want and why do you want it? These are deeper questions than just, this is what I want in my life. I like to ask husbands all the time, what do you really want out of your marriage? What do you really hope to get done? For, for a believer, <laughs> what do you think is God's heart for you in allowing you to be in a marriage? What does he really want for you? What's really going on there? That question that's below the surface can yield some pretty incredible insight. Not just, I've had single people say, I just, I don't, I'm tired of being alone. I'm tired of being alone. Hey, that's okay. God didn't make you to be alone. God said, for instance, it's not good for man to be alone. God created a community. In fact, when God wanted to do his work in the, in the world, he established two families, a biological family and a spiritual family. All of work that God wants to do, he does in community. It's totally okay. Now, let's talk about loneliness and what it is you're willing to do to deal with the loneliness in your life. Now, that set of questions reveals a lot about what's going on in your heart and where you are. But that can be some pretty painful stuff to work through. And imagine the shock in Mary. You're going to give birth. Wait, 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 wait a minute. How? Like, whatever option, however you're going to, it doesn't feel right to me. I don't I have no mechanical way of understanding what it is you really want from me. Are you really asking me to do that? Or what's going to happen? There was nothing wrong with the question, the The questions aren't the problem. Sometimes it's the kind of questions that we're asking. One of the questions I like to ask of myself when I'm working through a complex issue and I'm not sure what to do, I say, what would an expert in this thing do? So sometimes in my role as a leader of a church, I'll sit down and I'll say, here's the thing we're facing. What would a really great pastor do with this issue? Like one of the best ones I know. That's amazing the benefit I get out of Asking the question, not what do I want to do, but what would a really great pastor do right now in our marriage? What would a, like one of the best husbands I know, what would a really great husband do right now? What would a really great Christian do right now? These questions get below the surface because right questions can reveal what matters to us by displaying where we are invested and what our real values are. And right questions can reinforce what matters to us by keeping us focused on what is critical. What do I really want out of this? Number three. Before I give you the answer to this, I want to show you a couple pictures. All right, so a few years ago, uh, my son John was very young. 
And we thought that in his education, we wanted to give him the ability to uh, understand and enjoy art. It's one of those things we wanted to give for our kids. Not just all pragmatism, but a certain value for the arts. And so we did some homeschooling. And so my wife sent the kids downstairs one day. John's down there. And she's like, don't come upstairs until we have some pictures drawn. And um, you have some paper down there, some pens, some markers, and all that stuff. And so unprompted and unguided, she just put them down there. And a few hours in, they had been very quiet. She yells down the stairs, and she's like, um, hey, are you done with that picture? And the two kids that were down there were like, no, Mom, we're not done yet. We're really working hard. And it's like a mom's perfect day. She gives them a task, and they're doing the task, and it was awesome. So like two more hours pass. Two more hours pass, and finally the kids come and they present their artwork to mom. And so here's, here's my son's John, first attempt at any real serious art about, about kindergarten. It's a picture of a horse. Look at that. It's incredible, isn't it? It's like his first real attempt at a picture, just about kindergarten. By the way, that whole story was a lie. That is not true at all. There's no way that a kindergarten kid <laughs> drew that picture. Now, that's really John's picture. But that picture happened after years of sitting with a teacher who knew what she was doing, figuring out how to talk through what he wanted and transfer shapes and images from his head and other pictures onto paper. That's John at about seventh grade working hard on this craft for a while. You want to see one of John's first pictures? Throw up the next one. That's one of John's first pictures. <laughs> of course. So here's the thing. We have this idea in life that it's really authentic and it's really real when I just get in and do it by myself. But gift number three is getting assistance from the right people. Getting assistance from the right people. There's nothing powerful by being a solo operator who gets it wrong. In fact, if you're single, if you're married, if, wherever you are, if you're, if you're a student today, you're not called by God to figure it all out by yourself. You're called to be in community. And one of the gifts that God's given you is people in your life who are further along than you in some area of life. John had the benefit of sitting down with an art teacher who would craft a little bit with him. And he grew in skill. And he got, honestly, and that's early. Some of his work today is just incredible. And he's worked on it. But he had somebody who knew what they were doing, who had some skill, and he was willing to let them speak into his life. He wasn't just, oh, no, no, this is mine. It's my way, it's my way, it's my way. And I can't feel authentic unless it's all mine and I have no input. If you're single, if you're married, if you're a husband wrestling, if you're a parent wrestling, there are people all around you. Look, look at what happened to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready, and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home, and she greeted Elizabeth. We heard about Elizabeth in the story. So here's what happens. Mary's now going to be pregnant. She's made pregnant by God, as we told was going to happen. And she gets up, and she goes to the hill country where her cousin is, who's already further along in her own pregnancy. And Mary, who's like feeling pretty awkward about this thing, and people are talking about her, and they're kind of running her down because nobody believes it's really the Lord's baby. They know how babies are made, and it's not the Lord's. Mary's kind of claiming it's the Lord's. So she goes to Elizabeth, who's also had an interaction with God. And Elizabeth's about to give birth to John the Baptist, and Elizabeth is further along than her, and Mary parks herself at Elizabeth's house. And she gets the benefit of somebody who's further along in the journey. Can I tell you something? There's a challenge you're struggling with that somebody isn't further along than you. But if you've got to do it all your own and you've got to figure it out all your own way, or if you've got to talk to people who are just like you, can I tell you one of the worst things you can do if you're having a marriage problem? 
and sit around with a bunch of your friends who've also had marriage problems and ask them what you should do with your marriage problem. That's dumb. Did you know divorce is contagious? It is. You know who you should sit around with? Sit around with people who had marriage problems and worked through them godly and honorably and successfully and ask those people what you should do. As a single man, when I wanted to be a married man, I didn't sit around with my single friends and say, what should I do to be married? I literally submitted myself to some older people, got in Bible study with them, and said, hey, you guys are smart. Help me here. In my role as a pastor, you know what I do? I sit down with a coach who's smarter and wiser than me and has dealt with things I don't know how to deal with, and I say, what would you do here? All of us from time to time, all of us from time to time need someone from the outside to help guide our hands, just like John. And others can help you understand the principles and rules that govern important areas of life. This is what pens do on paper. This is what pencils do on paper. Here's how to make shadows. Here's how to make curves. And somebody can help you understand the rules of art. They can also help you understand the rules of life. And when you submit to those principles and rules, then you can begin to see some success. Those ahead of you can be a great asset to you. Here's the fourth gift, the most powerful one, the gift of submitting to the one who wrote the rules and principles for life. So John's with an art teacher, and she's saying, no, if you want to draw a horse, here's some ways to do that. You want to transfer some of those ideas onto your own paper. Here's how, here's how to hold a pencil. Here's how we do lighting. Here's how we do shadow effect, all things he's incredibly good at these days. And she guides and directs, and he looks at other people, and he looks at other work of people who are better than him. And when he does that, his work is more successful. Same thing's true in life. There are people who understand the principles and the rules of the way life works, and you can get input from them. But did you know that you can actually be in a relationship with the one who wrote the rules and the principles for success in life? You really can. In verse 38 of chapter 1, here's what Mary says. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. What she said was, I'm not sure of the whole journey, but I trust you, Lord. And, and she, she said, in effect, you're God, I'm not. You're God, I'm your servant. Whatever you want, big yes from me. I want what you want for me. And it changed everything. Proverbs chapter uh, 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What's the beginning of knowledge? What's the beginning of wisdom? It's when you have God in his right place. And we're invited to be in a relationship with the one who wrote the rules. So the beginning of wisdom for a single person, a married person, a husband or a wife, the beginning of wisdom is not a question about what job to take or who to marry or where to move to or what friendships to have. The beginning of wisdom is commitment to a person, the one who wrote the principles and rules about a successful life. And when that is established, the Bible says that that person will direct your steps and that person will guide you and take you where he wants you to go. And if I could give four gifts to single people, that's what it would be today. I want you to give this gift to yourself. I'd like to hand it to you the best I can. I can't give you the gift. You gotta take this gift yourself. You gotta invest in it yourself and see what God is gonna do with your life. Why don't you do this right now? Why don't you grab out your connect card? It's the thing that Pastor Will told you about earlier, and let's take some steps together as a congregation. So next step A for us every week is, today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. It's that committing to the one who wrote the rules 
and knows how life works and committing to the trust in him, which is bigger than every other obstacle in life you're going to face. If you want to commit your life to Jesus, take the pen we provided today and check next step A there on your box. We're going to pray in a minute. It's not the check. It's even not the prayer that does it. What it does, what it is that does and secures your relationship with Jesus is, as Pastor Will said earlier in the service, it's the confession from your own life that Jesus is the Lord. Not of the universe, but you want him to be the Lord of your life. You believe that he has died and raised again. If you'll put the card in the offering bucket, we'd like to know about it and we'll send you some information. We'll celebrate with you about the relationship that you have with Jesus. We're going to pray in a minute. You can use my words, use your own to talk to God about doing that serious business. Our next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized just like these folks. These folks checked a box. It began a journey. They answered some questions and now they're here today going to be celebrating. And then next step C says, hey, work with me as I uh, work through my fears or pray with me as I work through my fears and learn to trust God more. That's next step C. Pray with me as I work through my fears and learn to trust God more. If you're single, if you're married, if that's where you are, I'd love to pray with you. So just check the box. If you want to tell me what it is, turn the card over, write it on the prayer request, and we'll pray with you specifically or just generally. Next step D, if you're single and, it's, and you'd like our prayers as a prayer team and as a staff, it says, I'm single. Pray with me to follow God in my relationships. We believe this is an incredible church to build relationships with people who are on a journey, and we'd love to be a part of your life as well. And the next step E says, you can count on me to invite someone to the Christmas Eve Eve service at 4C. All right? You can do that verbally. You can use the text to give. Um, you can use a little card, the, the pay it forward kind of thing we were doing. Why don't you set that card aside? If you call this church home, I want to give you an opportunity to give back to God a portion of what he's blessed you with. If you're our guest, this time again is not for you. Uh, we're just glad that you're here. Your gift to us is your presence today. But if you call this church home, this is how we support the ministry around here. And man, you do it in a big way. So uh, we told you already that we opened up this new wing over here to serve our kids' ministry, and you're just going to see more and more stuff happening. But this week, as I was working with Pastor Josh and some of his incredible team members, um, kind of get that space ready, we were hanging some new cabinets on the walls and a couple televisions and stuff got ordered. And I just thought, man, how incredible it is that people believe in the ministry of what we're doing enough to buy things like cabinets and TVs. These aren't $5 items. They're hundreds of dollars. But you guys are gracious and kind and believe in what we're doing. And you want us to have the tools to do the ministry that God has called us to do. So thank you, 4C, for your giving. It means a lot. Let's pray about our next steps on our offering. And if you're getting baptized, go ahead and make your way during this prayer right over here to the wall. All right? Father, thank you for the joy of serving you today. I want to thank you, God, that you have called us into a relationship with you. I want to thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, and you did it through ordinary, everyday people who were on a journey, who struggled, who had thoughts and fears and hopes. I want to thank you for the testimony of Mary today, a single woman who got incredible news, had incredible hope, and she learned to trust God in the middle of it all. I thank you, Lord, for the gift of Jesus. I'm grateful that you sent your one and only son to die for us, that he gave his life on the cross, and that he was raised from the dead. Today, I lift up the men and women who are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I want to follow you with my life. I have no righteousness on my own. I can't save myself, so I trust the work that you have done on my behalf. Jesus, you're the Lord. Be the Lord of my life. Father, I want to pray for all the single folks who are part of this community. 
those that are in school, those that are out of school, those that have begun a career. God, you have not forgotten them. You have a plan and purpose for them. I pray, Lord, that today they would sense your smile upon them and they would sense the love of this place for them. We've all been there. I ask God that they would know more than ever that you are the God on whom they can depend, that their trust in you would grow. I pray, Lord, for our next steps today, that you would make us to go far in our growth with you. I pray for our offering today, that you would cause the money to be used for the benefit of your kingdom and for the good of your people. And I thank you for all the folks being baptized today. Lord, you're a good, good father. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.